Father, we do bow before you this moment, asking your spirit to take hold of our heart, capture our attention on the most glorious person of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, we admit before you today our unworthiness to even, even offer our worship to you. But God, you have made that possible because of your redemptive work in us. So we can present a sacrifice to you that is acceptable because of the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his high priestly work, his intercession for us, his promise to abide with us forever, for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, for the understanding that the Holy Spirit gives to us as we go to your word, and we pray, God, that we would do that faithfully. And that, Lord, we know this word has the power to transform and to change. To soften and break the hardest of hearts. So, God, I pray that you might use us as instruments to convey your word to others, especially the word of the gospel. The good news of what Jesus Christ has done in his death, burial, and resurrection in our behalf. Lord, we praise you for the word that's going forth today from those who proclaim it in truth. And I would ask, Father, your blessing upon those who hear that they might receive Christ if they have not received Christ and that believers also, Lord, will be changed by that word. Lord, we, we wait for your glorious appearing for your church. But God, we praise you for your first appearing in human flesh. You were born to die so that we might live. May you receive the honor and the glory and the praise of our worship this morning. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Since tomorrow is Christmas, that is correct, right? This is the kind of year when everything just gets kind of mixed up. But since it's Christmas, our, our worship this Lord's Day focused on the celebration of Christ's birth. It didn't have to be. There's no biblical command to celebrate the birth of Christ on a particular day. The Bible doesn't even give us the approximate time of the year. One of the earliest mentions of December 25th, perhaps the first, as Jesus' birthday, comes from a Roman almanac that was written in 336 A.D. And in that almanac, there was a list of the death dates and birth dates of various Christian bishops and martyrs. And the first date listed, December 25th, is marked Christ was born in Bethlehem of Judea. So regardless of the day, it is neither a requirement nor, nor a sin not to celebrate Christ's birth. 
You can choose a day other than December 25th if you want, or not celebrate any day in particular, as long as you celebrate and worship the Lord Jesus Christ every day, right? Now, a big part of worship includes the songs that we sing. Good music. Christmas time around the world is filled with music. But how many of those songs that people sing are theologically rich? We do sing many of them here at this church. Josh does a great job in picking them out. And two of my favorites are Thou Didst Leave Thy Throne and Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Both of those hymns speak of what I call the great exchange. Jesus exchanged his heavenly glory for an earthly human existence and then returned to heavenly glory. So the title of my message this morning is From Glory to Glory. But I want to focus in on that phrase, the great exchange. Thou didst leave thy throne and thy kingly crown when thou camest to earth for me. Emily Elliott wrote those words. And they struck me when I read them again because the only crown Jesus wore on earth was a crown of thorns. John 19, 2 says, And the soldiers twisted a corn, crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe. Charles Wesley wrote, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time, behold, he come, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased with us in flesh to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel, hail the heavenly Prince of Peace, hail the Son of Righteousness, light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. And then he wrote, mild he lays his glory by. That's the great exchange. He came from glory and he, he laid that glory aside. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John did see the glory of the Lord for a very brief period of time on the Mount of Transfiguration. He saw the glory of the Lord in the miracles that Jesus did. He heard the words of wisdom that Jesus spoke. He walked with Jesus, he talked with Jesus, he ate with Jesus. And he says in his first epistle, beginning in the first verse, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father, and was manifested to us. In John 20, 30, he says, Many other signs truly did Jesus do in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is Christ, the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. John also saw him on the island of Patmos. And he wrote in in the book of the Revelations in 
in the first chapter, verse 13, he, he describes him clothed with a garment. That's a robe down to the foot. And a wide gold belt around his chest. His head and his hairs were like white, white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like flames of fire, and his feet like fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he, and he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in full strength. And then John said, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. That's, that's the response of a sinful creature in the presence of a holy God. The great exchange is found in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. And you can look at that if you have your Bible and with you this morning, which I hope you do. Verses 5 through 11 here constitute an early Christian hymn. One that is theologically rich. Very theologically rich. So Paul calls for unity in the church of Philippi. And he brings up the Lord Jesus Christ in his humility. And he says in the fifth verse, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Coming from the, the realm of pre-incarnate glory requires a humbling, a great humbling of oneself. So I'll draw your attention to a couple words in this passage, just give you a little bit of a look into it. He says, being in the form of God, speaking of Jesus, never ceasing to be is the form of that word being. It is a statement of Christ's pre-existence and present existence. He exists in the form of God. And that Greek word form, morphe, refers to the nature or essence of something. So he's telling us that Jesus always was, never ceased to be, and always will be God. Amen. Jesus said, John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am. In 1030, I and the Father are one. In 1245, he who sees the one, he who sees me sees the one who sent me. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. John 13, 13. 14, 9, he who has seen me has seen the Father. All things that the Father has are mine, 1615. And Thomas, upon seeing the resurrected Lord Jesus, said in, in John 20, 28, My Lord and my God. However, the pre-incarnate Jesus abiding in heavenly glory 
made a choice. Not to divest himself of his deity, but to take on humanity. Mild he lays his glory by. The King James renders it, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. The New American Standard reads, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to like a prize. We might think of it this way. Because he was in the form of God, he reckoned equality with God not as a matter of getting, but of giving. He did not regard his divine prerogative as something to use for his own advantage. Human nature often looks to its own advantage, right? Honest admission? We look out for who? Number one, we look out for ourselves. That is why you rush into a parking spot before someone else. Right? I, I just, I saw a video of a man who pulled into a 7-Eleven and there was a car parked in his handicapped spot. He was handicapped. So he went over and he really, really gave the, the people parked in his spot a chewing out. But in the meantime, bef before he did go over there, the man who was in that car with his 10-year-old boy went into the 7-Eleven. So he went to the window and he just really gave the girl a hard time. Well, as it turned out, the man came out of the 7-Eleven walked up to him, threw him violently on the ground. The guy flew back at least eight feet. The guy made one step advance toward him. The man on the ground pulled out a handgun and shot him. And he died on the spot, over a parking spot. Over a parking spot. That's human nature, right? That's how safe, selfish we are and how violent we can be. But Jesus never regarded his divine prerogatives as something to use for his own advantage. It says he made himself of no reputation. The words literally mean that he emptied himself. Taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Jesus emptied himself by coming to serve. David McLeod wrote this. The thought is not that Christ emptied himself of something. Paul did not say that Christ discarded his divine essence or su of substance. He didn't empty himself of his deity. The thought, rather, is a poetic one. Christ poured out himself, is what that is saying. That is, he put himself totally at the disposal of other people. He came not to be served, but what? To serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Matyer wrote, it is not of what did he empty himself, but into what did he empty himself? He became a slave, a bondservant to others. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become what? 
rich. And being found in appearance as a man in Philippians, verse 8, it says, He humbled himself, and he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So as a slave, Jesus was obedient unto death, even by crucifixion, and he willingly did this. We know that because it says in John 10, 18, his own words, No man taketh my life from me. I lay it down of myself. That's willingly. I have power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it up again. Jesus was born to die so that men might live. And men can be exalted because Christ was humiliated. We will rise to glory because he left his glory. He lay his, his glory by. So the great exchange now, 1 Timothy 3.16. Without controversy, which means dispute, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up to glory. This was another early Christian hymn, theologically rich, that begins with the declaration that God was manifested, revealed in the flesh. And Paul called this the mystery of godliness. And you can't take that to mean the godliness or holiness embodied in Jesus. The godliness that Jesus came to bring both are true. But principally, this mystery concerns the manifestation of God in human flesh, that he might save men from their sins. Spurgeon said, he was God in miracles most plenteous, but he was man in sufferings most pitiable. And his suffering was a vicarious suffering, a vicarious Suffering means you're suffering for someone else. It means that he died in behalf of others. Sinners, Isaiah 53, 5, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. And what always strikes me about Isaiah 53 are the words that say, it pleased the Father to bruise him, to make him an offering for our sins. Second Corinthians 5.21, he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. And that's what every man needs because your righteousness apart from Christ is as a filthy rag, Isaiah said. Fanny Crosby, he died for you. He died for me and shed his blood to make us free upon the cross of Calvary. The Savior died for you and me. Paul called this a, a great mystery. God manifest in the flesh. The Greek word is musterion. And it means that it refers to a truth hidden by God until the time that God chooses to reveal it. The mystery truths of Scripture, the full disclosure of those truths, 
come by divine revelation, not by human knowledge or insight. You cannot understand the deep things of God with your own intellect. No matter how smart you are or think you are. I read an article in Scientific American. It says the brain's memory storage capacity to, is something close to around 2.5 petabytes. That's a million gigabytes if you don't know what a petabyte is. If you don't know what a, either of those are, you're, you're like me. He says, so for comparison, now, now take this in, all right? For comparison, if your brain worked like a digital video recorder in a television, 2.5 petabytes, the storage capacity of your brain, would be enough to hold 3 million hours of TV shows. You would have to leave that TV running continuously for 300 years to use up all that storage capacity in the human brain. Isn't uh, evolution amazing? No, what, what is amazing is that with all that capacity in your brain for memory, you can't remember where you put your car keys. Now, while the human brain has massive storage capacity, the knowledge that we possess as human beings, even the, the genius human beings among us, is microscopic in comparison to all the knowledge that there is to know. And, and that knowledge base is exponentially growing as I'm talking now. So that makes dogmatism about denying God's, God's existence absolutely indefensible. Atheism is completely indefensible. The total amount of knowledge, think of it this way, the total amount of knowledge any single person possesses is infinitesimal compared to the vastness of the universe and the immeasurable amount of information it contains, which we know so little of. A person would have to be omnipresent, present everywhere at once, and omniscient, have all awareness and all understanding, all knowledge, in order to have enough information to know that no deity exists. In other words, he would have to be what? He would have to be God. And these attributes are part of most people's concept of God. Omniscience, omnipresence. So hence, no finite human being can prove God does not exist because God may very well exist behind, beyond one's comprehension or experience. Atheism is completely indefensible. Well, God certainly has revealed things to us that we could not otherwise know. He calls them mysteries. And the verb form of that word, mysterion, mystery, meant to initiate into mysteries originally. To make known special secrets, there were many heathen sects that, that practiced initiation rites, which, which gave people hidden or uh, almost like occult knowledge. That was, that was the magnet that they used to attract people into these groups, just like the cults do today. But some of the biblical mysteries are the mystery of the church would be composed of Jews and Gentiles. Ephesians 3, the mystery of the kingdom, Matthew 13, the mystery of the sacred and permanent union of Christ and the church, 
Ephesians 5 exemplified in matrimony. The mystery of lawlessness in 2 Timothy 2. The mystery of the hardening of Israel in part, Romans 11. The mystery of the rapture of the church, 1 Corinthians 15. Behold, I show you a mystery, verse 51. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we will all be changed. So a biblical mystery involves the fulfillment of a God-ordained purpose such as the Jews and Gentiles worshiping in one body. God broke down that middle wall of partition separating the Jews from the, from the Gentiles. And he made of the two one, the ecclesia of God, with Jesus purchased with his what? With his own blood. So mystery truths which have been re revealed are meant for believers to understand and to appropriate. They're, they're no longer mysteries. So we should know them. The mystery of the incarnation is, is just a wonder. It's, it's described as the fullness, pleroma, of the Godhead bodily. Colossians 2.9, for in him, Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead. Let me explain that phrase to you. I'll read it this way. For in him dwells the state of being God bodily. Paul speaks of it this way in Colossians 2, the great exchange. Colossians 2, verses 1 through 3. You can look at it. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mysterion of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Some translations have the mystery of God, even Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Vaughn put it this way, Paul's mystery is a living and glorious person who is the fulfillment of the deepest hopes of mankind and the source of new life for all people. Galatians 4, 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, the Virgin Mary born under the law, the Mosaic law, to redeem those who were under the law, lawbreakers, that we might receive the adoption of sons. You know, when Mary and Joseph took Jesus to the temple after his birth to offer the sacrifice required by the law, there was an old man there. And his name was Simeon. And the moment he saw Jesus, the little child Jesus, his long-expected desire was fulfilled. When he took Jesus up in his arms and he blessed God and he said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for mine eyes have seen your salvation. What a moment that man experienced 
What a moment it must have been for him. Because God had told him that he wouldn't die until he saw the Messiah, the Lord's Messiah. And patiently, prayerfully, like Anna, every day that old man made his way there to the temple, anticipating, waiting for the appearance of the Messiah. And then he takes him and he holds him in his arms and he says, I can die now, Lord. I have seen your salvation. Amen. 20th century atheist philosopher Bertrand Russell said that one question he would ask God if finally he were to meet him face to face. Now, he didn't believe in God, but if there was perchance a God and he had to meet him face to face, he would say, Sir, why did you take such pains to hide yourself? What Russell failed to see and understand is that the invisible God became visible in the person of Jesus. He didn't hide himself. Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. John 1.16, of his fullness we have all received and grace for grace, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. It means made him known. He has made him known. Jesus made known to us the holiness, the justice, the wisdom, the power, the grace, the compassion, the patience, the mercy, long-suffering of God. Another song I think we all re really enjoy is The Love of God. I don't think we have it in our books, do we? So I won't read stanzas one and two. You take the time to find a copy on the line and do it. The tune was composed, the words were composed by Frederick Martin Lehman in 1917. And in that day, songs were not acceptable unless they had three stanzas, presumably representing the Trinity. So and he wrote the first two, but he just, his mind went blank. He couldn't finish it. So sometime around 1917, preparing to relocate to California, there was a camp meeting in a Midwestern state that he attended, and he heard an evangelist end his message by what became the third stanza of that song, The Love of God. And that third stanza in that song, as it turns out, was a translation of an old Aramaic poem that appeared in a Jewish prayer book in the 11th century, telling about the love of God toward the Jewish people while they were in persecution. And the author was a Jewish songwriter named Rabbi Meir ben Isaac Nehorai. And it is in the hymnology of the synagogue used for the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost. So that stanza that we all love was written by a Jewish man. 
While traveling in Germany, Lehman and his daughter came across an interpretation of that poem. It was written on the walls of an cell that held an inmate in an insane asylum 200 years ago, scratched into the wall. The assumption was that the inmate, inmate had scratched out those words in moments of sanity. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and it reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. And if the story be true, which I think it is, I have to wonder, did that insane man come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ as he pondered the love of God? Mild he lay his glory by, but he returned to glory. Luke 2, 8, and there was in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them. And what did it say? The glory of the Lord shone round about them, and, and they were very afraid. And the angel said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And, and you will find this sign given to you. You will find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was, a, with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. So his birth was attended by glory. He left heaven. And there was nothing glory about the circumstances of being born in the manner Jesus was born. But the angels let it known to these lowly shepherds. This is a glorious being. So go back to Philippians 2, verse 8. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. And he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, wherefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Listen. I have shared the gospel with a lot of people that have rejected it. I could not get a confession out of them that Jesus Christ is Lord and they need to bow their knee to him now. If they die without him, they'll make that confession. They will fall at his feet as dead and say, Jesus, 
is Lord. John 17, 4, I have glorified you on the earth, the Lord prayed. I have finished the work which you have given to me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. From glory to glory. Kevin Connor said, in the incarnation, the Son of God laid aside the glory that he had with his Father, and he humbled himself to take manhood upon himself. Humanity. Upon the completion of his toning work, Jesus was entitled to receive back the glory that he laid aside in his humiliation. However, this glorification, though being the same eternal glory that he had with the Father, pertained to his humanity. It was as man, the perfect God-man, that he was glorified. It was by right of who he was and what he had done. It also exemplifies the coming glorification of the saints. Brother, if you're a believer here this morning, if I call you brother, sister, we will see the glorified Lord Jesus Christ. We will see him in his glorified body, which hung upon a cross, which was crucified for our sins. And I think we'll, we'll be like Thomas, my Lord and my God. To think that Jesus did this for you, to think that he did it for me, it ought to change us completely as believers. We ought to be gracious and compassionate and humble and forgiving. Forgiving others even as Christ has forgiven us. So I do I do hope you take these truths in. I hope when you and I mentioned this on our program that we had uh for Christmas on the 13th or 18th whatever it was service of lessons and carols to pay attention to the words of songs many of them are theologically rich and and you can just get a theological education from the words that you find in a hymn book and i think one of the really sad things today is everything is being dumbed down everything is being weakened changed i was telling around the way over here i heard a guy talking yesterday i mean how many here have ever played monopoly you never played monopoly you were deprived okay monopoly the board game don't get rid of your old board game because if you get a new one it's a piece of junk the monopoly money is like tissue paper the houses are like pieces of cheap plastic that you can crush in your hand. The pieces that you move around the board, the same thing. It's garbage. Everything's being dumbed down, weakened, changed. But we'll, the one thing that will never change, none, one thing that will never weaken, is God's love for us in Jesus Christ. So let's serve him who came 
to serve and to give his life as a ransom for us. Father, we just praise you this morning again for who you are and what you have done. Mild you laid your glory by. And you came to this earth so that men can have eternal life. Sinful men like me and all these people here this morning. Lord, we, we had nothing to offer you. The claim is as a reason why you should accept us into your presence. You entered this world. The Lord Jesus suffered and bled and died to give us that righteousness that we do not have. A righteousness that is appropriated by faith. So I pray this morning, if there would be one here today who never really understood the Christmas message like this, in this way before, that God, you would awaken them out of their slumber, their spiritual slumber. Cause them to understand the words of the gospel that they might have the forgiveness of sin, complete forgiveness in Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior. We praise you for each one here this morning who has received Christ in that manner, acknowledged him, bowed the knee, and made that confession already. Lord, continue to use us to reach out to people who haven't. Bless these people now, Lord, for their coming. Bless them in their going. And I pray, God, they would have a blessed Christmas day. In Jesus' name, amen.